Amen. Well, as I've said uh, over the past few weeks, that Revelation chapters 4 and 5 are some of the most important chapters in all of Scripture. One commentator wrote, This vision is of great significance to believers on earth, especially those threatened with tribulation. Notice that in this heavenly depiction of history, the Christian church is given the most prominent place close to the throne of God, while the world looks upon the church and, and Christians as being the most insignificant people. This was especially the case of the seven churches in Asia to which John was writing. They are actually the most significant people. Since they bear testimony to the gospel of Christ and their worship is the most significant activity taking place in the world. Now, notice that last line that I read there. Their worship, the worship of God's people, the worship of the redeemed, is the most significant activity taking place in the world. Now, that's a statement that we really need to let sing into our brains. This commentator, and I agree with him, says that the worship of the church, the worship of God's people, is the most significant activity taking place in the world. How many churches and Christians do you think believe that? Certainly, the unbelieving world doesn't believe it. They think there are things far more significant taking place than what a group of believers may be doing on some Sunday morning. And the more I thought about that, I thought, you know, I just said to myself, that's incredible. And I wonder if you'll take the time to think about it. I wonder if it won't change your perspective on worship. At the very least, it should change how you think about worship. And if you think on that statement, suddenly, Sunday morning at 11 o'clock becomes more than just another time slot in your schedule. It's really something incredible to think about. When you understand that what takes place in your church every Sunday morning is truly significant, then I believe a couple of things will happen. Number one, it will change how you approach Sunday morning. It'll change how you approach Sunday morning. But it will also change the way you approach Saturday night. Say, how come? Because suddenly, when you realize the importance and the significance of Sunday morning worship, you will rearrange the way you do things on Saturday night in order to properly prepare for Sunday morning worship. What is your Saturday night routine like? Do you try and stay up as late as you can to watch as much TV as you can? And then come dragging into church half awake, incoherent, not sure what's going on, and sometimes not caring what's going on? But if you understand that Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, something significant is going to take place, then it begins to change your perspective both on Sunday morning and Saturday night as well as the rest of the week. If you understand just how significant Sunday morning is, it will change your approach. What if you would think about Sunday morning at 11 o'clock as the most important appointment that you will have for the week? 
you know, we have various kinds of appointments in our lives. We got to go to the dentist every once in a while. We got to go to the doctor every once in a while. We got to meet with uh, this guy or that guy or whatever the case may be. We don't want to be late for that appointment. We want to be prepared for that appointment, right? Well, what if we began to see Sunday morning at 11 o'clock as a very significant appointment? I wonder if we would approach it differently and see it differently. I wonder, do you approach worship casually or seriously? But we need to ask ourselves, why is the worship of God by the church the most significant activity taking place in the world? Let me give you a couple reasons. Number one, first, the worship of God by the church declares to the unbelieving world that God exists. Don't take it for granted that everybody believes that God exists. I did some research this week and found an article in the Washington Post that uh, earlier in the year relayed the findings of a Gallup poll in which the pollsters found that belief in God dipped to 81%, down six percentage points from 2017, they said it was the lowest since Gallup first asked the question in 1944. 81% sounds pretty good. Do you realize that in Britain and Europe, the same question is asked only 36% of people say they believe in God? Think about that. But let's not be fooled by that 81% number. Those who say that they believe in God don't necessarily mean that they believe in the God of the Bible. They don't necessarily believe in the God who's revealed himself in the pages of Scripture. And I would dare say that a large percentage of that 81% who say that they believe in God, they believe in a God of their own making. They believe in a God that they have fashioned after their own image. So therefore, when the church, when the people of God gather corporately to worship God, it says to all those who don't believe in God or we love you, but you're wrong. God does exist, and because he exists, he is worthy to be worshipped. It also says to those who believe in God as some higher power, but their belief in some higher power has little to no impact on their lives. Our corporate gathering says to them, we love you, but you're mistaken in your understanding of God. We gather for worship each week to worship the God who has revealed himself to his creation, both in general revelation in the the creation, as well as through specific revelation in his word. Second, biblical worship recognizes the worth or the value of God. Notice what the 24 elders said in verse 11. Worthy are you, not how they start off, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So what do we learn here? Number one, worship is the natural response of those God has created. And we all have a built-in desire to worship. Say, I'm not so sure about that. Why then can aging rock stars like a Leonard Skinner or Boston or Foreigner or somebody like that, why why are they making more money now than they did when they were originally were popular? Because we have this desire to go worship 
what we see perhaps as the heroes of our youth. Jeremiah is going to tell you that Striper came out with a new video this week, and it lived up to Striper quality, if I put it that way. Think about it. Why do we feel, I watched the Tennessee-Alabama game yesterday, and that place was filled to overflowing to watch two teams play a game. And once uh, Tennessee won, they flooded the field and tore down the goalpost. Why? We have this desire to worship. It's built into us as human beings. Third, worship of God reminds both the believer and the unbeliever that there's more to life than what we see. So what do you mean by that? Well, worship of God takes a focus off of ourselves and places it where it should be, places it where it rightly belongs. True biblical worship is the antidote to our battle with self-selfishness and self-centeredness. Why? Because we quit looking at ourselves. We understand that we are not the most important people in the universe. Let me add also that true biblical worship is the antidote as well to the individualism that has overrun our culture. See, the worship of God is, is meant to be carried out among and with the people of God. Not you alone in the coffee shop. Not you alone in the woods. Not you alone at the beach. Not you sitting on your couch with your remote watching online church someplace. You know, we have seen now that we are sufficiently removed from the pandemic that online church, frankly, didn't work. And thank God we only had to do it for, I think, four weeks. Many have said that online church just never felt like the church. You know why they had that feeling? Because it wasn't the church. Why? Because the people of God are meant to meet together in worship. The people of God have a desire to meet with other believers for worship. Finally, worship of God brings comfort to the Christian by reminding them that God is the one seated on the throne and that he is currently ruling and reigning, not just over the affairs of your life and my life, but over the affairs of the world that we live in. I've said this several times the past few weeks. When we come and worship, our perspective is changed. Our eyes are turned upward to the one seated on the throne. And as we worship the one seated on the throne, we are reminded that the one seated on the throne has a plan, and that he is actively carrying out his plan. We are reminded that God is in control. And as I was studying this week, this thought came to me that as we watch this scene in heaven, there's absolutely no panic, anxiety, or hand-wringing going on in heaven. None at all. So, what's your point? 
Well, keep in mind, chapter 4, the vision that John has of the throne room, follows chapters 2 and 3, in which Jesus gave the seven letters to the seven churches. And what do we know from our study of the seven churches? Most all of them had problems, whether it was false teaching, whether it was sexual immorality, whether it was the pressure to conform to the trade guilds. They all had some kind of problem. They were very real problems. We also know that, that the churches were being persecuted. There was, there was pressure on them to confess Caesar as Lord. We know that there was, there was martyrs that happened during that time in the churches. It wasn't exactly a smooth sailing time for the church. But what do we see in heaven? Jesus knows all this is going on. God the Father knows all this is going on. But what what is missing from heaven? Panic, anxiety, hand-wringing, worrying about what they're going to do next. How come it's turning out this way? They know that from all appearances, evil is triumphing over the church, but yet they're not in a panic. What is going on in heaven? Worship. There is worship. John MacArthur wrote, nothing is more important than worship. It is the theme of scripture, the theme of eternity, the theme of redemptive history, to worship the true and living and glorious God. Worship is the central issue of all of creation. Have you ever thought about this? There is a sense in which worship keeps us sane. So what do you mean? It keeps our thoughts from running wild. Worship squashes all the what-ifs of life that try and rob us of peace. There are no what-ifs with God. Now, in our life, we seem to be constantly confronted with what-ifs. Some major what-ifs, some minor what-ifs. A major what-if. What if Putin decides to use nuclear weapons? That's a major what-if. A minor what-if would be, what if the Bengals never win another game? Or, or, or perish the thought that the Buckeyes would lose to Michigan two years in a row. What if that happens, Lord? But see, there are no what-ifs with God. He knows the beginning from the end. The future is fixed. The future is certain. It's in God's control. It's in God's hands. Therefore, why do we worry? Why are we characterized by anxiety? Why do we wring our hands about the affairs of this life? God has a plan, and it is working out exactly as he wants it to work out. And granted, we can sit back and say, boy, that doesn't look so good at times. But it's exactly what God wants it to be. You know, God has no backup plan. So why not? Is he a poor planner? No. He doesn't need one. He doesn't need a backup plan. 
you and I, we, it's smart for us at times to make backup plans, right? Why? Because we don't know what the future holds. So therefore, sometimes we need to have an alternative. It's just good wisdom. Why do you back up your computer? You do back up your computer, don't you? We back it up because hard drives fail. But God never has that problem. God doesn't need a backup plan. His plan is not going to fail. He has one plan that's working out perfectly. There are no what-ifs with God, so therefore there's no need of a backup plan. God is seated on his throne, and as we've seen, he is actively ruling and reigning, and everything is going according to plan. You know what the vision of John here in chapter 4 communicates to us? In modern-day language, as it's God saying to us, don't worry, I've got this. Don't worry, I've got this. I'm in complete control. Well, as I said last uh, two weeks ago, excuse me, we must not let the description of the 24 elders and the strange description of the four living creatures keep us from missing the main point of what John has written here. And what is John's main point? Well, what does John want us to see? Is it all about the strange creatures? Should we expend a a ton of mental energy trying to figure out who they are and why they exist and all those kinds of things? There may be some value to that. Should we pour a lot of our energy into figuring out why there's 24 thrones encircling the one throne and why there are 24 elders? Well, all of those things are important, important. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that they're not because they are. But what the strange living creatures are doing and what the 24 elders are doing is far more important than who they are. And what are they doing? They are worshiping. And what is taking place in heaven should be also taking place on earth among the people of God. Therefore, as we study chapters 4 and 5, we're going to learn so much about how God is to be worshipped. This may shock a lot of Christians today in a lot of churches, but as I said a couple weeks ago, we are not allowed to freestyle in worship. No. Save it for the skateboard park, not the church. There's no freestyling here. So what do you mean? Worship is described and prescribed in the pages of Scripture. And we have no right, in fact, it's quite arrogant to think that we can depart from that, make whatever adjustments to that that we would like to do. Now, Richard Phillips writes in his commentary, the 24 elders specifically represent the purpose of redeemed humanity, which is to praise God, to praise and glorify God. And this purpose is actually carried out not only by them in heaven, but also by the true community of faith on earth. So why do we worship? Because the people of God will worship God because that is why we were created. That is the purpose for which we exist, to worship God. See, that, that's why it is so incongruent for someone to claim to be a Christian but will never gather with the people of God. It's just built into the Christian's DNA to be with the people of God so that they can worship their God. Well, in the last message, we took time to identify who the 24 elders represent. 
and the conclusion reached was that the 24 elders are representatives of the redeemed. And we base that upon the fact that the 24 elders are wearing white garments and the crowns that Jesus promised to give to all those who overcame. That is to all who are in Christ, to all whose sins have been washed away by the blood of Christ. Now, if they are our representatives, we need to let that fact impact us. Think about it. They are all around the throne of God. Listen to what an old, old commentator wrote. He said to the believer, they, the 24, are your representative. Those thrones and crowns and priestly robes are yours. That position round and near to the throne of a covenant God is yours. Such is the place you occupy in the spiritual kingdom of God. Its purity, honor, power, and nearness to God are indeed, as yet, yours actually but in part. But if you are his at all in the covenant of his love, they shall be yours in actual possession, in all the glorious fullness of blessing and privilege which they imply yours forever. Say, where will you be one day in heaven? Around the throne. Worshiping your creator. So therefore, we should be worshiping the one seated on the throne. As we'll see in the next chapter, chapter 5, we should also be worshiping the lamb who was worthy to take the scroll and to open the seven seals. Let me give you a couple more thoughts about worship. First, it doesn't matter who you are, or what you are, you were created to worship your creator. There's nothing that exists that isn't designed to worship the creator. Again, look at verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you, what? You created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. What was the purpose for which they were created? To worship him. The elders say, by your will, they existed and were created. We were created to worship God. Why were the hosts of heaven created? To worship God. Say, where do you find that? Look at Revelation chapter 5, verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Now, what does John say there? Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. And what does he hear them do? They worship God. They worship their creator. And really, you think about that is an absolutely incredible thought. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. Does that mean earthworms are going to... Praise their creator someday? I don't know, but they're under the earth. The fish in the sea, are they going to praise their creator in some way, shape, or form? I would say yes. Why? Because everything was created to worship their creator. And by the way, what is the sin of mankind? It is the failure to recognize God as our creator. Listen to Romans chapter 1. Paul makes it clear here in Romans 1. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Well, how do they do that? For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Therefore, nobody has an excuse. No one. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So Paul highlights here a second truth about worship. Worship always has an object to be worshipped. Have you ever heard somebody say, you know, I just want to worship? Worship what? Worship yourself? Worship your spouse? Worship your car? Your job? Your house? Your favorite sports team? You're going to worship something. You're not just worshiping. Well, true biblical worship always has God as the object. God has revealed himself so that he can be worshipped. As John Piper famously said, missions exist because worship doesn't. And what has mankind done? They've taken the very things that God created as markers, as signposts, as pointers to him, and they have begun to worship the creation rather than the creator. So again, you don't just worship, you always worship something. Now, I said a few weeks ago that Sherry and I like to watch this show alone, and there's some of you who uh, like to watch it as well. You, you can learn a lot about people's outlook on life by watching this show. But one thing that, that strikes me is um, these people who will, you know, we worship you, Patagonia. We worship you, Labrador. We worship you, Mother Earth. It is, and all at the same time, Mother Earth is doing everything they can to kill them. There's bears, there's wolves, there's cougars. They have nothing to eat. It's 30 below zero. Oh, we worship you for freezing us to death. Now, now why do they do that? Because we have this built-in desire to worship. But what has mankind done? We have begun to worship the creation rather than the creator, and that is the sin of mankind. So true biblical worship is summarized for us in Revelation chapter 5, verse 13. Look there with me, if you would. John says, And I heard every creature in heaven and earth and, and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That's biblical worship. Why? Because it is has the right object of worship to the one who's seated on the throne. That's who they're going to worship. To the Lamb who is worthy. That's who they are worshiping. They have the right object of worship. Worship, as MacArthur says, is the ultimate priority. Third, worship is given not only for who and what God and the Lamb are, but also for what they have done. Let me say that again. 
we worship or worship is given not only for who and what God and the Lamb are, but also for what they have done. Now, let me highlight this week just one facet of what the Father and the Son have done. Look, look again at Revelation chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. Now, this is referring to the Lamb. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp, each and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open his seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So ask yourself this question, why are the four living creatures and why are the 24 elders praising the lamb? Why are they praising the one who is worthy? Here it is. For the gospel, for the gospel, for the redemption of sinners, for ransoming, ransoming people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. They praise and worship because of the gospel. But do you notice something interesting here? It's not just the 24 elders who are representative of the redeemed that are giving this worship to the Lamb. It's also the four living creatures. It's the four living creatures. Look how verse 8 begins. And when he had taken a scroll, who comes first here? The four living creatures. And then the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Now, I haven't dealt with these four living creatures yet, so let me do it briefly here this morning. We're first introduced to these four living creatures in Revelation chapter 4, verse 6, if you want to look there. John describes this scene, and before the throne there were, as, as it were, a sea of glass. Say, so you've never told us what this sea of glass is. That's frankly because I'm not sure. i got to be honest with you. There's all kinds of opinions as to what it can be. If you wanted to really nail me down, I would say it is a divide. Uh, between God and his creation, but we may look at that another time. We'll see. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Now, as you read that, John's description of these four living creatures may seem vaguely familiar to you. And if it is, there's good reason for that. And that is because the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, in his vision, saw four similar creatures that he called interchangeably the, the living ones and living creatures. For instance, in the book that bears his name, Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Ezekiel wrote this, As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, a gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had human likeness. Now, Ezekiel has another vision of these four strange creatures, and that is in chapter 10, verse 20. And there he identifies the four living creatures as cherubim. This is what he wrote. These were the living creatures that I saw underneath the God of Israel by the Kibar Canal, and I knew that they were cherubim. So, oh, I know what cherubim are. That's them, that's them, uh, Fat, chubby little angels that come out around Valentine's Day, and they, they got the little uh, little bow and arrow, and you know. No. Uh-uh. Nothing, nothing be, could be further from the truth. The cherubim are high-ranking heavenly beings 
that were created to serve the one seated on the throne. And we first see them show up in the Garden of Eden in order to guard the tree of life after the fall. And they also, in Scripture, protect the Ark of the Covenant. But what do we see here? We find these powerful servants of God falling before the Lamb and worshiping and praising Him for the gospel. Now, isn't that absolutely incredible? You say, why, why, what's the big deal? They've never experienced the gospel like you and I have, but yet they fall down and they worship the Lamb. That's how much they appreciated what Christ has done. They fall down and they worship him over the gospel. And they, again, they were not direct beneficiaries of the gospel like you and I are. And to be honest with you, I find my, I find my cold heartedness, I find this to be a rebuke to my cold heartedness towards the gospel when I read the reaction of those who have never experienced the saving grace of God. But yet, they fall down and worship him. They have no problem doing that. How much more should we who have experienced the saving grace of God worship the one who is seated on the throne and the worthy lamb who by his blood redeemed us? Something to think about, isn't it? And do you realize there's only one way that you can truly worship God? And that is if you are in Christ. You can only worship God in an acceptable manner if you are a Christian. For the non-believer to worship God while disobeying God is blasphemy. It's hypocrisy. So what's it mean to be a Christian? It means that you're not what you used to be. It means that, as Paul wrote in Corinthians, that you have become a new creature. You are, as Peter describes in his letter, a partaker of the divine nature, which does what? It produces a change of heart change in your affection, change in your desires, a change in your will. So how does one become a Christian? Well, not by trying to be a good person, because you'll never be good enough for God. That's shocking to mankind to think that they can't be good enough for God. You can't become a Christian by trying to reform yourself, because you don't have the way, you don't have the ability to change yourself in any way that is remotely acceptable to God. You don't become a Christian by trying to work your way to heaven. There are lots and lots of religious people, churches filled this morning with religious people who are only there because they're wanting to get on God's good side. If they think if they do enough good works, then they'll be acceptable to him. But the Bible teaches that even your best works are unacceptable to God. See, the problem is you cannot provide what you need the most. One of my heroes of the Christian faith, Martin Lloyd-Jones, made this so very clear. He said, what mankind needs is an alien righteousness, 
In other words, we need a righteousness that is not our own, that comes from outside. You need the righteousness of Christ to be credited to you. That's the only way. Listen carefully. That's the only way you become acceptable to your creator to whom you belong. So how do I receive this righteousness? Well, this may be a shock, but you can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't bargain for it. There's just one thing you can do. You can ask for it. You can come to Christ. You can come to Christ empty-handed and humbly confess to him that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. You can come to him with a repentant heart, willing to trust him and him alone to give you the righteousness you so desperately need. See, the good news is Jesus will give you what you desperately need if you will come and ask him. So there's a sense where you got to swallow your pride and come to Christ. Well, let's pray.